Sarah Marshall. Good morning, Neverland. <laughs> Wrong episode. Hello, Alex Steed. Good morning, Christmas Town. You and I are in the same place. Yes, I'm looking at you right now in real life. Your your meat self. <laughs> this is a first for the show. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? This is so strange to me because I feel like we started doing this show because I was going to lose my mind because we just started having a pandemic. It was like a new concept to be having a pandemic. And I was like, what if I could see my friend all the time? Because we have to, because there's a show. And now it's like, you're here. And Carolyn's here. And like, the show is all around us. The show is like Jamie Loftus is on your Jamie couch. Jamie Loftus is on my couch. <laughs> She really, I could be making that up, but she, she has a beanie baby. <laughs> That's fucking wild. Like a year and a, and a couple of months ago, we didn't have a show. Yeah. And now we have a show. The whole family is here and we just watch Christmas Town. Yeah. And we ate chicken. It stresses me out to choose stuff for people because what if they don't like it? But I was just like, we're going to watch Christmas Town and we're going to eat this chicken. <laughs> and I, it seemed to go well. The fact that this has culminated in all of us being in this house right now, mm-hmm. watching Christmas Town itself feels like a Hallmark movie. Yeah. <laughs> like a Hallmark movie for filthy millennials. <laughs> they started a podcast. Yes. They created a family. Yeah. That's <laughs> oh, so nice. Sometimes... Even angels need some help. (laughs) (laughs) What are your takeaways or things that people should look out for in this uh, Hmm. lively conversation that's very kind of about Scrooge? Probably people know that if we are alone without a guest for an episode, it's just one of those like, don't come in, everything's fine kind of situations. (laughs) And... We do talk a fair amount about Scrooge and then also a a larger amount not about Scrooge Mm. and about what is Bill Murray, which I'm very proud of that conversation. I think we got to the bottom of some stuff. I am too. I am too. I think we asked a follow-up question to what people assumed had been answered for a long time. Right. It's like splitting the atom. It's like, yeah, maybe that's the smallest thing if you're a quitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) We have a Patreon. Yes. You can find us at patreon.com slash you are good. What happens for people who follow on Patreon? Well, they get bonus episodes about two a month. Two-ish. Yeah, it's like, what time are we going to have coffee? (laughs) Two-ish. And we have one coming out on Hook which I'm just really happy about because we talked with Carolyn about Hook, which like always makes me happy to do a Carolyn episode. Mm -hmm. I like the bonus episodes because we stick to format even less than we normally do on the show. We have episode-inspired playlists for each of our episodes. Uh, You can find that in our show notes. Sarah, are these songs that are necessarily inspired by the movie itself, or how do we go about finding these? No, they're not, Alex. I'm so happy you asked. <laughs> they're songs that are inspired by the conversation about the movie, and also by the movie, but also the conversation. And as you know, the conversation can spread out in some directions, like a gallon of sweet tea spilled on a kitchen floor. And <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm extremely proud of our work on these playlists. I think this is like a very important outlet for me. I am too. I'm always surprised by your encyclopedic knowledge of novelty songs. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's excellent. This is important work. And then finally, we have a Discord, which is like a chat room from 1997. That is what it's like, huh? Yeah, it's yeah. been fun. People are over there talking about things and feelings and movies and ADHD and stuff. Those are our main food groups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> movies, feelings, ADHD. All in a day's work. Any uh, departing wisdom? You know, Christmas means a lot of things to a lot of people and a lot of stupid things to a lot of people. But like, I love Christmas. I really do. And I just feel Christmas in my heart and in my living room right now and I just want to bring some Christmas to everybody. Whatever makes you feel like your heart is a big dumpling, that's what I want to give you if I can. Beautiful. Let's get Scrooged. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Come in and know me better, man. Sarah, we're talking about Scrooge today. It's just you and me. It's a cozy, cozy time. Yeah, we're at that masterpiece theater place. So we have like dressing gowns and lots of books and a crackling fire. Mm. And we're talking about uh, a classic piece of American cinema. Mm -hmm. Richard Donner's Scrooge. Yes, (laughs) a movie that insists... On existing in a world where a Christmas carol is called Scrooge. They're like, tonight, watch our adaptation of Charles Dickens' classic, Scrooge. It's like designed to make certain children feel like they're losing their minds. Yeah, and that's not just like a one-off thing that happens a lot. They say it like 18 times. It honestly was like, I loved this movie, but that really bothered me. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm curious if that was a choice because Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donoghue wrote this and they're both very, very smart people. Mm-hmm. Michael O'Donoghue was the head writer for the early seasons of SNL and then came back later. I have feelings about him generally, but like, is that like in this land where TV reigns and people just care about ratings and stuff, Mm -hmm. they just refer to it as Scrooge? Mm. Or are they worried that no one knows what a Christmas carol is? (laughs) I feel like some idiot who is, you know, the Bill Murray type character who all of these filmmakers have to work with constantly was like, no one will understand the title of your movie if you don't pretend within the movie that a Christmas carol is called Scrooge. And it's like, (laughs) you're right, Mr. Finance Guy. We can't trust people to know what one of the only books consistently read for the last 200 years has been. A Muppet Christmas Carol is not out yet, so most people don't know what this is. Right. And that movie wasn't called Muppets. (laughs) (laughs) A Muppet Scrooge. (laughs) Muppeted. (laughs) And it occurred to me today, and it never has before, that Scrooge is a pun on screwed. So until just this moment, same. Really? Okay. I might, I mean, I might be wrong, but no, I think you're absolutely right. And I totally grew up with this movie and had no idea. Yeah. No idea. Before we get into the plot and I mean, the plot is familiar, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it's, it's a little, little tweaked because of the setting, but Mm -hmm. what were some of the immediate things that struck you in watching this for the first time? 
I think the first thing that really struck me was that there was a guy in it who sounded exactly like Bobcat Goldthwaite. And then that was Bobcat Goldthwaite. And I, <laughs> that really told me what kind of movie I was in for, which is one that casts Bobcat Goldthwaite as someone who, until they start talking, does not make you think about Bobcat Goldthwaite. <laughs> and... <laughs> I don't know why I haven't seen this movie before. I suspect it has something to do with the fact that like my mom must have caught some of it on TV when I was little and been like, we're not letting this Christmas carol in our home. It has too many capers. I hate capers. She's a very <laughs> anti-caper woman. Sure. And so I grew up, I guess mentioned this when we talked about Jingle All the Way. I grew up watching the George C. Scott Christmas Carol, which is has amazing music, by the way. And The Muppet Christmas Carol, which also has amazing music and is a musical. And so I've seen The Christmas Carol, some adaptation of it, or A Christmas Carol. 95% sure it's called A Christmas Carol. <laughs> but anyway, I've seen The Thing I've Seen probably like 70 times in my life, mm. like two a year for 33 years with like a few extras thrown in. So I feel as if I have like some Christmas Carol monogamy, like there are a lot of Christmas Carols out there, but like I have my two Christmas Carols. I'm like uh, the kid in Freaks and Geeks. I have two friends. Why do I need more? I have two Christmas Carols. <laughs> yeah. But this movie is a delight and a Christmas Carol is defined by the way it does its Scrooge and there are like wonderful different directions you can take that in. And I think this movie and whether you'll enjoy it really centers on whether you want to see Bill Murray be a complete son of a bitch who's like really damaged and sad but in a really funny way because he's a little bit self-aware about it and then watch him grow which I realize now is like the premise of a lot of Bill Murray movies I wanted to talk about that too Watch Bill Murray grow. Yeah, I think I've said I think I've said this before in a past episode I can't recall but the you know like this movie pretty clearly I think at least in the in the marketing for it was like this is a Ghostbusters adjacent Christmas Carol mm -hmm. because we have the special effects are fucking great in this movie mm -hmm. and that it's just got Bill Murray supernatural tone but like I grew up as a person who had a real reverence for the Ghostbusters mm -hmm. I'm a 38 year old man mm -hmm. so of course I did but like I watched it recently with Carolyn who is younger and did not grow up with the Ghostbusters and she watched it and was just like this movie is about a bunch of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she's entirely right. Like I grew up where right. I was like, oh, like I get them. I sympathize with them. I had a cartoon about them. Like I had enough to ingratiate me to the Ghostbusters. But like really, I mean, uh, Peter Venkman, especially in that movie, is just he's an asshole. And in this movie, he's like three notches more of an asshole. <laughs> he's a more successful asshole. Yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, he's a good guy in Ghostbusters. He is. He's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. He just likes getting blown by ghosts and uh, hanging out with his pals. Alex, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> also, don't you feel like kind of the cornerstone of successful comedies at that time was like a parade of assholes who were supposed to want to get their way? Like Caddyshack, Stripes, Animal House... A fourth example I thought of a second ago and then forgot. <laughs> Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, yeah. there's. A, I grew up on that movie. My dad loves that movie for some reason. Yeah. It makes sense, I feel like, because the 80s were so ruthlessly capitalistic. And I think comedy and horror are genres that are allowed to say what you can't 
say elsewhere, like on the news. And so maybe comedy was a way of being like, if you're a loser and you can't get ahead financially, like, don't worry, your ghost busting idea will take off or whatever. (laughs) This movie is like a Christmas Carol meets network, you know, so I really want to talk about those things. Or like a Christmas Carol meets nine to five, too. Yes, 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 yes. Tell us what journey we go on in this movie. So... This movie has a wonderful opening. Like I was one over in the first like 10 seconds because we get this wonderful, very obviously Danny Elfman score happening. We swoop in on Santa's workshop in the North Pole where Santa Mm. and Ms. Santa and the elves are hard at work. And then a bunch of terrorists apparently swoop in on snowmobiles. And then Lee Majors swoops in because he's going to (laughs) rescue Santa. And then it kind of zooms out and we see that we're watching a network TV promo for like Christmas Eve programming, which is (laughs) Lee Majors saves Santa. And then Bob Goulet's Cajun Christmas, which made me so happy. I was like, oh, my, like, I'm in safe hands, basically. If there's a Robert Goulet joke in the first minute of a Christmas movie, like, I'm just going to settle in ready for joy. And the Lee Majors movie is The Night the Reindeer Died. Yes. (laughs) The premise is Psycho sees Santa's workshop. (laughs) Which, this is also kind of wonderful to me because, Alex, I'm sure you know this. And this is why you have to help me get my mom a VCR or maybe like a TV VCR combo for Christmas, because I don't think they make that many of those anymore, if at all. And it's tough. But anyway, our sacred Christmas text, above all others, is a copy of the George C. Scott Christmas Carol that my parents taped when it aired on CBS in a special Christmas Eve presentation in 1988, which or 1989. Excuse me, which means that my deepest attachment to a Christmas movie and Christmas memories are like completely intertwined with ads for IBM, which was sponsoring the movie. (laughs) And they had the PS2 out this year. And how are you going to do it? You're going to PS2 it with the IBM PS2. Like that's like (laughs) Christmas music to me. And they also had little news bumpers about, I believe, the ousting of Noriega. Um, So, yeah, there's something that really hits a sweet spot for me for this Christmas movie to be satirizing late 80s Christmas, like crass network programming, because that's exactly what I grew up watching every single year. Mm. And then we see that Bill Murray, who's the youngest ever president of the network is in a meeting where basically he's like, we can't just have people want to watch our live Christmas Carol special, which we're calling Scrooge for some reason on Christmas Eve, we have to scare them into watching it. And so they play this amazing promo he's made, which is like, I'm going to do my best impression and then he can tell me what I left out. Drugs, freeway (laughs) shootings, international terrorism. Makes you think what Christmas is all about. Watch Scrooge on IBC. (laughs) Your life just may depend on it. (laughs) And then a young, I don't know what his title is, but a guy at the network played by Bobcat Goldthwait is like, oh, excuse me, sir. I think that promo will scare people. So Bill Murray fires him. So he goes out and begins a downward spiral, which he'll be busy with for the rest of the movie. There's an ongoing gag where he buys liquor and then like gets splashed and then the brown bag like disintegrates and he loses his bottle. And then Bill Murray basically goes through the classic Scrooge the morning of his 
transformation things. He's mean to his worker, who in this case is his secretary, Grace. He's mean to his brother. In A Christmas Carol, it's his nephew. And there's also like a lot, like four Murrays in this movie, which is wonderful. So his brother is played by his real brother. It's Richard Murrays. And later on, his dad will be played by his brother, Brian Doyle Murray, who's, I think, the the connoisseur's Murray, the Murray's Murray, if you will. Who got Bill into, uh, into improv. That's so great. He's the best. He's the best. I'll always think of him as the bubble boy's dad on Seinfeld. <laughs> and basically sets himself up for for us as someone who needs to be visited by the three spirits and the premise of the Christmas Carol for people who who don't know is that there's this miserly old jerk who has lots of money but he won't give it to anyone he's dedicated his life to hoarding a fortune and underpaying his workers and he's miserly and alone and on Christmas Eve he's visited by the ghost of his former partner who's like, I am in hell and I have a chain. Tis a ponderous chain. And (laughs) it's because I didn't do anything about all of the suffering all around me in Victorian London, which I could have done. And you need to get your shit together, man, because you're going to end up in hell in a big chain if, if you don't do something. And Scrooge is like, whatever, I probably ate something. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, which is an amazing line. Then goes to sleep and is visited by three spirits all in one night. The ghost of Christmas past who shows him growing up as a lonely boy. And he's like, oh, no, I was such a lonely boy. And my dad was mean and blamed me for my mother's death. And oh, no, this is making me feel vulnerable. And then how he had a romance with a young idealistic woman who he abandoned for the pursuit of his capitalistic goals. And then the ghost of Christmas present takes him around London and shows him how his employee is celebrating despite not getting paid very much. And his son, Tiny Tim, and shows him people around London who are celebrating without him and are like, I don't like that Scrooge guy or who are destitute, but still having a better Christmas than him because at least they have each other and one potato. (laughs) And then the ghost of Christmas future comes finally and is like, if you don't get your shit together, you're going to be dead this time next year. Okay. And then he wakes up and he's like, oh my God, I've seen the light. I'm going to be nice. And I'm going to give my money to tiny Tim And by being generous, I will not die. And I love Christmas now. The end. (laughs) I really want to discuss that as like a psychological contrivance. Totally. As a psychological contrivance, as it's one of the most popular stories known. Yeah. We live now in an even more dystopic hellscape for, for the hoarding of wealth. And it's still the most popular story, most one of the most resonant stories ever told. Fascinating. In this movie, it's told with more screaming and more uh, nipples and more solid gold dancers than ever before. <laughs> and more Murrays than ever before. More Murrays than ever before. And in this movie, it's the same. It's We go through the same situation. It's like exactly the same story. There's no difference. There is a tiny Tim. I don't know what that boy's name is. Calvin Cooley. Oh, he's such a sweet boy. Yeah. Such, a, such an adorable young man. And uh, yeah, there's no difference. It's the same exact thing. Except that we have a love interest who's like still on the table because in 
Dickens' A Christmas Carol. If you miss your chance with a girl, she's going to fuck off and marry the next guy she meets. And then she's going to have a baby for every year. And then she'll be dead of childbirth by the time you're both 40. So you got to strike while the iron's hot. And it does feel like a bit of a stretch here because Karen Allen in this movie is obviously a goddess because she's Karen Mm -hmm. Allen. But the most outlandish piece is that it's still on the table because she's seen him Mm -hmm. just be in the world and she seems great. And I don't know what her relationship with her parents is. I don't know what is going on in the background of her life where she thinks that this guy is still a compelling option. She has given him too many chances by the time he gets his new chance. Yeah. I agree. But anywho, it's nice to see them. She's so great. I love every time she's on screen. And this was a new Karen Allen role that I hadn't seen, which like those are like gold to me because I really fell for Karen Allen when I was about 11 and first saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. And she really hasn't been in that many things. So whenever she shows up in anything and has something to do, like she was in the Sandlot, but she really didn't have Mm. a lot to do in that movie. So yeah, I'm just always happy to see her. Where do you want to start here? I would love to start with what is your relationship to this movie, actually? And like, what to you is the Christmassy feeling? And like, does this movie give that to you? I grew up with this movie in the same way I grew up with Ghostbusters, though this wasn't on as heavy rotation. Like this was definitely seasonal. It's not a movie that we owned. It's a movie that was just on TBS a lot or some channel. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up watching it. I was going to say there's very, very few things that my parents were like, you can't watch that. But I think that they had like trouble with this because I think that even though they didn't believe it in their hearts, they thought that like some holiday thing should be sacred probably. Hmm. So like, you know, this as like a send up, I think they didn't really know how to deal with that, but it wasn't off limits. I just remember, I think like they were kind of annoyed with it. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it was too, too cynical. I'm not sure. But watching it now, I was thinking a lot about what you said in the last episode, the jingle all the way episode about how you think some movies should have, you know, like Christmas movies should have a little bit of Jesus in them. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how well this movie pulls that off. Yeah, because again, like this movie really does feel a lot like an over the top, almost slapstick network because it's really Mm -hmm. commenting on just like how nuts cable has got or how how networks have gotten cables. I don't know what the what the ultimate commentary is, but like this movie's parody is very real to today's reality. Right. What is portrayed on screen as is over the top, like has been done with like Sharknado. Like we live in this reality at this point and right down again to like the solid gold dance. Being a part of this, like it feels so very much of the time. Yeah. But then we have just Bill Murray yelling about seeing the reason for everything at the end. And like, I love how manic that last scene mm-hmm. is. You know, he ultimately takes over the television program, the, the Christmas Carol television program to yell about the lessons that he has learned. It's like the part in Tootsie where like Dorothy takes off her wig and makeup and reveals herself to be Michael and yes. is doing like that monologue was, but I am not Emily Kimberly, daughter of Dwayne and Alma Kimberly. <laughs> you just said the removal is very good. This movie is very, like, very sentimental and very sweet in its message, but is told through a layer of Bill Murray yelling and special effects. And mm-hmm. I think, like, that's as comfortable especially when I was a kid, that's as comfortable with sentimentality as I I could be. Right. And and I think that's as close as a lot of people can get to it. And that's healthy because too much sentimentality and you get stories like, you know, that 
Facebook post that's like, I'm a doctor. And when I needed a rare blood type for a patient's sister, I asked the little boy if I could have his blood. And he was like, sure, just tell me when I'll die. And it's like, yeah, that's what doctors do. They just are like, hey, little boy, give me a pint of your blood, whole blood. It'll be fine. I won't explain the procedure to you. In my mind, I was like, this is a movie I have a lot of fondness for. I think it's great. Like, there's all these parts that I remember. But I actually liked this movie a lot more this time than I have in the past. And I already really enjoyed the movie. It succeeded in what it was trying to do, even though the screenwriters and Bill Murray don't like this movie at all. I mean, I feel like this movie got a a fairly definite stylistic treatment. And if you had wanted something else or saw another future for it, that would be hard. But knowing only what we ended up with, I really like how it turned out. Like it does have this kind of Cuisinarded feeling. Mm. Like it feels like a lot is kind of fit in quickly and kind of the way it's edited it feels the scenes feel almost slammed together yes but in a way that makes it feel very energetic i think this would be a great double bill (laughs) with broadcast news Mm. i forget scrooge's job in a christmas carol but i know it had something to do with he was trading futures and i think he might have been a money lender i mean he was working in like some kind of like essentially old-timey wall street yes you know so that story by having him be forced to undergo an epiphany i feel like the implication is like and other people like him should do that too and with this with bill murray being a tv executive it's like that's the industry that this movie is pinpointing as the heart of a lot of what's wrong with america and its greed and that makes sense to me yeah definitely and i think it made me think like i don't know i have such a conflicted relationship with people saying that particular forms of media are bad Mm -hmm. because you know i grew up on horror and video games Mm -hmm. and those were two things i was told regularly were going to be bad and then all the boomers who told us that like there's a meme about this already but like all the boomers who told millennials that that was the case ended up getting hooked on media that actually was bad and it was just like cable news Not all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Many of them did. And this making him a television executive that is making decisions about programming. And, you know, like, again, I feel queasy about saying some things are good or some things are bad. But when you're shaping the overall network programming with like you need to create an actual fear of people missing out. Right. Of what is playing on their screens. I'm not going to say it's prophetic because it was just talking about what was happening mm-hmm. in that reality already. But uh, it feels especially prophetic looking back on it, seeing where we've landed. Right. Like there's nothing wrong with Robert Goulet's Cajun Christmas. But <laughs> like the the way you sell it and the way you see what you might need to do to garner the market share that you want. Yeah, it's, this is the foundation Fox News was built on of like, it's not good enough to inform people or to make them want to watch something. You have to make them terrified to look away. Totally. And I don't think that this is what is happening or this is what's being commented on. But like not Fox News, but the Fox Network is is launching at this time. Yeah. I mean, obviously networks are trying to figure out how to exist and thrive all the time and how to reinvent themselves or whatever. But like when Fox comes on the scene and networks have to figure out how to not just be the three things that have always been, but like actually compete with other programming, that's when things get real spicy. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't have to go the way that it did, but like that's the kind of shakeup that's happening at this time. Mm. You know, I was really raised by cable programming in many ways. And it's like, the it's weird. It's like the TV is my friend. And also it's my friend who helped 
take over the world in a way that it, it really shouldn't have. Uh, but then I guess social media was never my friend, so I don't have to feel as conflicted about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think putting Scrooge in this role was perfect for the time. Mm -hmm. If you made this movie now, like Scrooge would have to be Zuckerberg. I was just thinking that. Would he like wake up and be like, I understand the spirit of Christmas and I don't want to surveil millions of Americans any longer or something. I'm going to unplug the very simple plug that connects the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> the damage is done, Zuck. You can't wake up. I mean, I feel like maybe Bill Murray, to me, he pulls this together because I think he is compelling as someone who is is capable of changing. Like he acts that whatever combination of emotions that is. And I feel like this movie probably helped Groundhog Day to exist mm -hmm. because like that's him doing that role in a way that makes more sense to me or like feels to me kind of like sentimental and believable because like he really is able to change. It just takes him depending on how you watch it, like thousands of years trapped in a time loop. Right. Do you, is your read that he's thousands of years in that time loop? Cause I love that. Yeah. I, I feel like it could be thousands of years. He learns how to play the piano. Like we don't know, you know, like he goes through so many stages of grief. I feel like he's there for at least decades. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The thing that I picked up this time in watching the movie as closely is there's so many pieces it'll be hard to just like touch on yeah. because of all the great things that happen around them. But like David Johansson in the role as the, the ghost of Christmas past is so, so great. I love him so much. I had no idea who he was. And then I looked him up and the internet was like, he was in the New York Dolls. And I was like, oh my God, of oh, course yeah. he was in the New York Dolls. And this was like his height as like his alternative character, Buster Poindexter, which was like yes. his like lounge act character. Oh my God. I loved Buster Poindexter. Oh my God. So we go back in time and I think this was the first time I realized not just like that, like Bill Murray's character had a sad childhood, mm -hmm. but it appears that his pregnant mother leaves on Christmas. Oh, so we get to know Bill Murray and his brother and his brother's like really sweet. And you're kind of like, why is his brother really sweet? Mm. And it seems as though his mother got out of the house and was able to raise probably raise his brother like without a veal mm. distributing father. His father gives him veal for Christmas. Although that's, a, you know, market value, as Bill Murray says, that was a great it was a great gift if you weren't. Right. If his father really didn't care about him, he would have given him hamburger. Yeah, if you weren't an eight year old, like it would have been a fantastic <laughs> gift. But that's something that this is a detail that's picked up after mm. the fact, but it kind of makes his relationship with his brother make a little yeah. bit more sense. I imagine I imagine there's a touch of resentment there. Oh, yeah. A theme, too, is that like a Christmas carol is about like learning to let Christmas into your heart and to see Christmas as like a day for giving and generosity and not a day when, you know, your pocket is picked because your employee gets to have the day off to be with his tiny Tim. I feel like you really have to thread the needle for that one, because I feel like even when Dickens was writing this, like you could look at Christmas and be like, this is just a this is something being pushed by big goose. You know, like, <laughs> where's the Jesus in all of this? Is, is this a, or is this just about the queen's German husband and how we now have to light things on our house on fire because of him? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think I love a Christmas carol as much as I do because I do buy that about Christmas that like at its best, it can be a time for us to think about each other and make amends and reach out to people we miss and be generous and just kind of 
think about love and humanity in the midst of winter darkness or, you know, perfect surfing weather if you're in Australia. Like, does that work for you? When you're asking about what I think this gets right, and it's not just Scrooge, it's the story itself, but like as a modern retelling that illustrates the fact that we spend the entire year trying to put our best intentions in action. And in theory, we've carved out a space, a holiday space for being reflective and spending time with our families and remembering the reasons for everything. And hopefully we can take some of that spirit forward. But like in actuality, especially under sort of the behemoth that is Reagan capitalism at this point and everything that comes after, your ability to actually practice that is it's hard depending on your status and either you are a worker bee and it's hard because you're working or you're in management and you've internalized the abuse of the system and you're sort of distributing the abuse of the system. It's so embedded and so extreme that it's conceivable to believe that it requires supernatural intervention for you to be reset in a way where you can get back in the pattern of seeing what it's supposed to be all about. I do wish that this movie had had Bill Murray waking up and being like, you there, you know, the poulterers down the street. You need they still have that goose in the window. And the boy's like, the one as big as me, sir. And he like throws <laughs> him money and tells him to go get it. I just want to see Bill Murray do that. <laughs> I love the part where he's in the shelter and they are they under the impression that he's Richard Burton. Yeah. What are they requesting? They're requesting he do lines. I think the sandpiper. Yeah. Various Burton monologues. And then he just does it. Yeah. Like that's like one of the funniest gags in this movie. I think is that he just has that in him. Maybe this is a time to talk about the magic of Bill Murray and like the kinds of jerks that he's able to play. There is definitely a phase and I feel like it's past, which is good because like no celebrity can withstand this kind of love really. But where people were like Bill Murray, he's like this existential icon or something. He just seemed like this creature of the forest. Yeah. What what is the Bill Murrayness? Anytime a thing becomes that, I'm so perplexed. Like that, yeah. Bacon did that for a while. Like when when something really, yeah. There was like a weird bacon, like fa- like a- attention to facial hair. Like when things, oh, the, like bacon the food, not Kevin Bacon. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Kevin Bacon's just always been right. that. I don't understand when things become like a real time meme of themselves. Yeah. Like I don't I can't quite wrap my head around it. And so but there was that moment where like he became a myth of himself and people upheld that myth. And like I'm a lifelong Bill Murray fan, but I've read a lot about him and I know that he's difficult and tricky. And like I think has that can't be true. He's in comedy. Yeah, He's been shitty in particular ways. Like he's a hard person to maintain a friendship Mm -hmm. with as as I understand it so like I don't know what do you what were people projecting onto him where they needed that to be the reality someone who also has done this but the bubble's never been burst and I hope that it's never burst is Tom Waits Mm -hmm. Tom Waits lives enough in obscurity where it's I think it's really difficult to burst that bubble yeah that happened that moment happened like 10 years ago I think it probably started at Lost in Translation and went through a couple Wes Anderson movies I don't I feel like he became maybe this kind of comedic mascot for the idea of being old and broken down and nihilistic, but in a way that wasn't dangerous Mm. to people immediately around him. Because this does kind of happen with old men, right? Like old men become memes in this way, like Jeff Goldblum. Like I have to get a snow broom for my car and the company smells it S-N-O-W-B-R-U-M. And I know I'm going to write Jeff on it. 
So it'll be Jeff Snowbrum. <laughs> and I love Jeff Goldblum. And like, I've thought he's hot for a long time, but like, he definitely also had like this meme bubble where he was just like the leather jacket wearing old piano playing zaddy chaotician. And then Larry David, this happened with Louis CK, mm -hmm. this happened with. I feel like there's like this age group for men. <laughs> where they can become for a while like symbols of non-threateningly self-aware or self-loathing masculinity. And then either people will like move on or it will blow up because you're a sex pest. Yeah. I saw recently something attributed to Willie Nelson, and I don't know if it's actually attributed to him because I can't find the source. So I assume it's one of those things that someone came up with in the Internet and was like, this is clever. Let's say Willie Nelson mm. said it. But it was a poem and it starts with the line, I've outlived my pecker. <laughs> and I think that that's in theory when it happens right. to these people. Right. Is like when it seems like that dark magic is over the dark magic of just like, mm. you know, getting what does Jim Harrison say? The uh, biology wins over philosophy every time. Mm. The fright of the human impulse unrestrained by men who are unrestrained is gone mm -hmm. for a minute. And then you can kind of build a myth around them. Right. And then one in two of the people who you just mentioned are disappointed. Because <laughs> it's like we have to make them be like extra appealing to make up for the fact that we're like, ah, fuck everyone else, honestly. Uh, you know who I'm worried about in this context? This is a fu funny total series of asides is Britney Spears. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm so worried. People are like, now I can't wait to see what she does for people who are living with mental health issues. It's like, don't expect any. This poor woman, mm -hmm. just fucking leave her be. I know that that's not going to happen. I know that that's not what we're doing. Yeah. But, but like people are like, I can't wait to see what she's going to do. And it's like, maybe she's not going to do shit. Maybe she's going to get a break for the first time in her fucking life. Yes. <laughs> leave her alone. Just leave Brittany alone. It's not her job to be a superhero for people stuck in conservatorships at this point. Like that's for us. That's for the rest of us. Yeah. And I just think I'm a big supporter of like loving people medium. Yeah. I love Jodie Foster. I've loved her forever. And yet, if she said something that politically I disagreed with, I wouldn't be like, oh, Jody, because like we haven't met. I don't know what she thinks about Yemen. <laughs> She's still friends with Mel Gibson. There's enough things for you to be like, eh, Jody, if we actually had a thing, I might talk with you about this right. thing. But we don't because I'm just a person who's consumed your media and that means something to me. <laughs> And even if we were friends, and this is like a big tell about the kind of person I am, I feel like I would want to like get to a certain level of closeness and history and just be like drinking smoothies before <laughs> I was ever like, you know, Jody, like I just am curious about what does your friendship with Mel, what, how is this serving you, your friendship with Mel, you know, but like, I can't tell people what to do, you know, I just can't be in celebrities business that much. It's, it's too, I have too many many things to do, you guys. Yeah. And let's let Britney be. I mean, Bill Murray did experience this long moment of just being Bill Murray. And from everything I do know about him, a lot of it is based on reality, though. Mm. Like, I do think like he is enigmatic in particular ways and he has made really fascinating choices. He became extremely bankable mm -hmm. early in his career. And then for the most part, seems to have had a lot of fun with that and wielded that power mm -hmm. in a way that not just, you know, made for like interesting roles, but like empowered and brought up 
artists that he believed in throughout his career, like or, you know, showed up for Jim Jarmusch Mm -hmm. or like showed up for Wes Anderson, showed up for Sofia, you know, Sofia Coppola didn't need help, but like showed up for Sofia Coppola. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I mean, I don't know. Define help. I was thinking the other day, it's like very funny to get back to that cultural moment where it was like Sofia Coppola just directed a movie. Let's see how this goes, because everyone was still blaming her for ruining The Godfather Part Three, a movie that she for sure wrote, produced and directed. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that like she didn't need help by as by way of a filmmaker, but it's like pretty good name to have. Yeah. Although her brother, whose name I can't exactly recall, but he's the one who's co-written some movies with um with Wes Anderson, mm. and he he directed at least one movie that I saw and was fine. She's clearly the superior director, <laughs> but I just think like she didn't necessarily need a boost from Bill Murray, but a boost from Bill Murray was very very helpful for her. Right. If you've reached that stature and if people see you as making a project profitable, if you show up in it, then it's like how you choose to wield that power says a lot. And stories about Hollywood, I think, can have the effect of making all of us townies who go see this movie or these movies feel kind of like insiders because so much of these meta stories are about compromise and idiocy and the impossibility of making something truly good. It makes sense that people respond positively to like watching someone accrue some kind of real power in Hollywood and then use that in a way that feels, oh, like maybe I would do that. I would want to like do something fun and weird and then like help a young director make more money on a movie and stuff like that. The Bill Murray story that always comes to mind, like always, is when they were making Rushmore and Wes Anderson was like, we need to pay for a helicopter shot, but we ran out of money and Bill Murray wrote him a check for $25,000 and they shot the helicopter shot and then they just never included it in the movie. (laughs) Like how often have you thought if I had X amount of power, I'd do this really weird thing. I thought you were going to say how often have you thought if only Bill Murray were here. (laughs) But yes, I've had the thought you said even more often. And he seems to be a person who puts that in action sometimes. And I think people enjoy that. Yeah. And I guess that is like what we dream that we could be. That if we were seduced by the machine and given the power to kind of write our own ticket, that we would do weird stuff on purpose. I mean, this is like Bill Murray adjacent because it's John Lurie, who collaborates with Jim Jarmusch a lot, but fishing with John is one of my favorite things that exists. And it's like the best, an intentionally boring fishing show where John Lurie goes fishing around the world with big stars. So it's like John Lurie goes ice fishing in Maine with Willem Dafoe. And that's it. You just watch him ice fish. The best. Have you seen the painting show yet? No. Oh, my God. It's so <laughs> good. John Laurie in the 80s was the most beautiful man alive. Hard to debate. Gorgeous. And John Laurie now just looks like a man who lived an intense life. He had some health scares. Mm -hmm. He had some real drug addiction. He's a very fascinating man to see, a very interesting man to look at. He knows that. And I think he plays with that a little Mm -hmm. bit. And and it has the same vibe as Fishing with John. Um, But from the perspective of now, like a 65 year old painter. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's so good. I mean, my goal is to like keep getting the opportunities to do more weird stuff creatively and to keep doing weird stuff for as long as I can. And like we did a bonus episode on Julie and Julia recently, and I feel like this kind of connects to that conversation there, which is like, who is Julia Child? Why does she matter so much? Why is she so important to us as Americans? And I feel like that movie shows 
you know, one of the answers, which is like, she really knew how to live, man. Like she knew how to have fun and she really dedicated her life to wonderful food and sharing wonderful food with America. And she had this beautiful marriage and just seemed to like love the flavor of being on this planet. And I feel like looking at people who are able to keep making art for a long time, like that's just a way of being that feels I hate this word because it's become so social media-y, but aspirational. Yes. You know, the thing that it just struck me that I think Bill Murray does very well, why I think he just works in all of the roles that he works in is he's kind of like the opposite of Robin Williams. Hmm. But like Robin Williams was like dealing with heavy shit for a lot of his Mm -hmm. life and was a very good, enthusiastic clown. Yeah. Brought you joy no matter what. Make him laugh. Yeah. He was dealing with heavy shit. Bill Murray does the exact opposite, in my mind, as equally as funny when he works, Hmm. which is like, he's sad. He is a sad clown. In his best roles, he's going through a prolonged moment of sadness. Somehow brings the same energy and the same amount of humor that Robin Williams does, just with like a different volume. Hmm. But he leads with the sadness and Robin Williams leads with like the enthusiasm Hmm. and kind of, there's not burying the sadness, but the sadness is propelling that out in some way yeah i think also they're both so lovable because there's just something so childlike about that where you're like i can make you laugh even if you want to cry <laughs> like i was that kid yes. a lot of us were that kid and like whatever valence that takes like that's a family role i think my favorite bill murray role is when he played jeff the roommate in tootsie because he just has like <laughs> he, he's not even in it for that many minutes but like the level of deadpan he's at is incredible. And like, he's just, he steals every scene. There's like a part where Dustin Hoffman is talking about going on a weekend trip with Jessica Lang and how he has to stay in costume as Dorothy the whole time. And Bill Murray is just like standing there, like eating an entire plate of lemon wedges for no discernible <laughs> reason. Like you assume this is like an acting kind of a thing, but they don't say why. And he's like, I'm just afraid you're going to burn in hell for all this. And (laughs) more and more, I think one of the things this pandemic has shown me is that comedy keeps us alive and we owe our respect and gratitude to people who can make us laugh. Yeah. The whole Bill Murray is a meme thing became that because people were like, isn't it fun what he does? Like, isn't it fun? There he is. And it's like... (laughs) Bill Murray's a sad clown. I feel like maybe he's also kind of a depression icon. Yes. He seems depressed, but in a way where he's still like cogent enough to like see what's funny, which I think is kind of the goal for depression where you're like, you know, maybe I'm not getting out of this, but I should at least be able to recognize that something's funny. (laughs) Well, if you think about the fact that like Bill Murray's third act as a comedian has been 23 years long. (laughs) I would argue it kicked off with Rushmore in which he was depression, you know, sort of personified yes. and then was boosted again in Lost in Translation yeah. where he was depression personified and like kind of like a the sad part in your career, looking back at your career and having regrets. And he has been some version of that since. Where where else do we go with this movie? Carol Kane plays the ghost of Christmas present. Which is very funny because like she has more the demeanor of a classic ghost of Christmas past. But she's also doing Glinda. But she wasn't David Johansson. We'll put Carol Kane in here. Because I first saw Carol Kane in Annie Hall, which I saw probably when I was about 12. And I remember just being like utterly bewitched by her. She plays Alison Porchnik, who is 
Woody Allen character's first wife in that movie. She has like two scenes. And I feel like it must be different now for people who are that age. Or maybe this is one of the things about being 12 that's timeless. But when I found an actor in something that I really liked, I felt like maybe nobody knew about them but me. Because <laughs> it was just me and my parents watching these movies. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And I felt that way about Carol Kane. I feel like there are a few ways to make a movie work. And one of them is making sure that like nearly every role is filled by somebody who makes people happy to see. And I think that that's going on in this. Yeah, you have, you know, we've talked about we have Bill Murray and Bobcat Goldthwait and Robert Goulet mm -hmm. and Robert Mitchum <laughs> and Carol Kane, David Johansson. Mm -hmm. We have Anne Ramsey and Anne Ramsey's husband. Who's Anne Ramsey again? So Richard Donner made this, who had just made The Goonies by this point. And Anne Ramsey plays Mama Fratelli in The Goonies. She's like that scary lady. Oh, I thought that was Mama Fratelli in there. Not only is that Mama what I didn't realize is the man who is right next to her is her husband, like her actual Yay. husband. And he was like a, a character actor for years, as, as was she. And she died this year when the movie came out. So the movie's dedicated to Anne Ramsey. Oh. Also, the, the flashback where Bill Murray is watching his younger self playing Frisbee the dog is wonderful. It's an audience of kids. And David Johansson, Ghost of Christmas Past, and Bill Murray are there as specters. Nobody can see them. And so they play this game on the show where the dog is delivered like a giant bone with a bow on it. And they're like, what could it be? Is it mittens? What is it? <laughs> David Johansson's enthusiasm and that delivery. You know, it just lives in my soul. It's mm -hmm. like his teeth, how big he is about it. It's yeah. so good. What does he say? It's a bone! <laughs> <laughs> and there's and that actually it's more proof of bill murray's depression this is mid-career bill murray's depression mm -hmm. because you have this wide shot of all these kids screaming it's a bone like with joy and david johansson screaming it's a bone with, with enthusiasm and then bill murray's just depressed face in the in the sea of yeah. all this joy it's beautiful i love that I found that breakup scene absolutely like convincingly heartbreaking mm -hmm. where Karen Allen comes and they're about to go. They're about to go to their best friends. And this is kind of where it seems like he's given up on Christmas. This is the, mm -hmm. this is what we're what we're seeing, despite the fact that he received veal from his dad. And that's when his mom left. You'd think that that would be when he gave up on Christmas. But there was some hope because he met this lady and she was great. But they're about to go to their best friend's houses for Christmas house for Christmas. And he has just been invited by his boss to go out to dinner with his boss, the woman his boss is sleeping with that's not his wife who he mm -hmm. works with in a real intense sexual harassment situation mm -hmm. and you know surrounding tv executives and he the guy in the dog suit has finally been invited to have his break and she's like oh we of course we can't go because we're having christmas with our friends she's like maybe we should separate because he's not going to go and he's actually a real dick mm -hmm. about it and they kind of get separated by all the like hubbub that's going on. And she kind of like backs up and she's sad and she yells. She says like, hey, Lumpy, Merry Christmas. And he doesn't hear it. And it's so sad. Yeah. Because it's Karen Allen's sweet face. <laughs> yes, I know. She has the face of like a little bush baby. 
<laughs> like when there's a nature show where they're like, this tiny marsupial lives inside of a single tree. She really does. She broke my heart with her earnest face. She's lovely in this. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, any Christmas carol, it'll work for you or not if you believe that people can make radical changes to their lives. And like, I really do. I still do. I think that humans are capable of changing in all kinds of directions, in fact, and sometimes for the better. I do think there's like something real about this, which I keeps it from becoming purely sentimental about, you know, both the Dickens version and this adaptation of like, yeah, if you're going to get a guy to change his wicked ways, you do have to confront him with death itself a couple of times. Yeah. I'm a lazy but still dedicated practitioner of like various mindfulness practices mm -hmm. and, and meditation. And all that is, is a self-imposed slowing, right? Mm. Because like, if you just let yourself be, you will get caught up in the current. And if you're in the current, like you don't know where you're going, you don't know what's happening. You don't know who or what you are. So you figure out these opportunities to like actually slow and intervene upon yourself in order to see who you are, what you are, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And like, all this is arguing is that if you're not doing that naturally, you would benefit from some divine intervention. Yeah. I wish we had more spirit visions, especially for really, really rich people. <laughs> it would be nice. What we're trying to accept now as people is that change is possible, but like change is a process and change is a way of life and you can't get it all over with in one night at Christmas. But like maybe Christmas is a way of reaffirming your commitment to that and, you know, thinking about like, all right, it has been a year. What do I want to leave behind in this year and carry into next year? And what bullshit am I subjecting myself and other people to that I could stop if I felt strong enough? A lot of the aesthetic of Christmas is not about, you know, Christ. It's about solstice. Mm -hmm. It's about sort of acknowledging a specific turning point in like natural seasonal order and saying like, okay, we're done with that thing that just happened mm -hmm. or we're starting this thing that's about to happen. And it's about taking advantage of a time that is, you know, changing in one way or another and trying to seize that narrative a little bit for yourself through ritual and aesthetic. You know what else I like about Christmas? I was thinking about this the last couple of days because Easter is probably the most Jesus focused holiday in terms of like what it's about. But I love that Christmas is about the baby Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, what do you think about it? Like, isn't that kind of funny in a wonderful way? It's like, this is the biggest holiday in the United States, whether you partake in it religiously or just as like a way of getting time off and being able to socialize. But like, at its heart, it is a celebration of a little baby. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that's really silly and it makes me happy. The baby is a metaphor, but it's not, you know, like the baby's a metaphor for like a new age. Right. Me, I don't want to be dismissive to anyone who's like a sort of like a practicing Christian here by saying this. But like the reason we fixate on the aesthetic of the story is that it's like this is a new opportunity. All babies are metaphors, really. Like whenever a baby is born in your life, you're just like, ah, oh, look at that baby. It makes you think. It's a metaphor until two. <laughs> and then it's a nuisance. <laughs> 
I am glad that you mentioned this is Danny Elfman's heyday. Right. Oh, my God. This is like primo Elfman. And I had forgotten that he did the score to this because it is really a preview for what we're going to get in Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes. Like, it is Danny Elfman Christmas. And also Batman Returns, which is also Danny right. Elfman <laughs> Christmas. That's exactly... Oh my god, you're right. Yes! Yes! Danny Elfman had a fucking magical five years of Danny Elfman Christmas. <laughs> From 88 to 93, it was Danny Elfman Christmas. Speaking of, like, people who've lived long lives and just remain creatively alive throughout and been able to make a living on their art without being hollowed out and destroyed by an industry, like, Danny Elfman is one of my big (laughs) heroes in that area. Like, sometimes I just remember that Danny Elfman exists and I feel better about everything. What are your remaining uh, Scrooge thoughts? We've really gone down some... uh some roads here as always yeah i mean i feel like this movie is just like back to back favorite parts for people like i imagine that everyone who listens to this will have a different favorite part and they will all occur at five minute intervals and it's impossible to name them all (laughs) and oh i love that there's like this little whisper of like free africa and apartheid stuff in here everywhere yeah everywhere in the movie Right down to like a Keith Haring poster, but there's like stickers on stuff. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up. That was something I was trying to remember. Yeah. Very of the moment. Mm -hmm. I bet Richard Donner wore the biggest red ribbon at the award shows. I hope so. I said earlier on Twitter that I think Michael O'Donoghue, who co-wrote this movie of National Lampoon, like that crew was an early Saturday Night Live writer, like a legendary Saturday Night Live writer. I think he's the type of person who like PJ O'Rourke would have at the very least become an insufferable conservative, if not a just straight up MAGA dude, like if he'd lived this Mm. long. I'm curious if you have a read on why he and Bill, well, Bill Murray's issue was more with the director, Mm -hmm. but like why you think that those people would not have been satisfied with how this turned out. I don't know. I feel like I can't know without knowing like what their original vision was. They said it was going to be a masterpiece. Yeah, I wouldn't call this a masterpiece, although I know some people would debate me on that. But like, okay, technically a masterpiece, like the origin of that term is that when you're like learning to be an artist in the Renaissance or whenever people had that job, You like do a bunch of pieces to show that you've learned certain techniques. And then when you've mastered everything and you're ready to be like a grown up painter, you do a painting that like shows you're ready. And that's your masterpiece. Mm. It shows you're a master and you take it around and show it to people. And they're like, oh, it's your masterpiece. So you are a master. So that's good. You're ready. I like using that term specifically because then I feel like it's something that comes in your late early career and shows you kind of graduated and know what you're doing. So by that standard, Duel is a masterpiece. Yeah, I think like Boogie Nights is a masterpiece. Yeah, totally. And this is like a lovely, accessible comedy for the whole family about Bill Murray doing A Christmas Carol. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of like, I don't know how much changed from the script to what we saw on screen. And it seems like Bill Murray's issues. And this is just like this is just Wikipedia research. This isn't like a real deep dive or anything. Mm -hmm. But it seems like his issues are primarily Donner's direction style and Donner not necessarily getting how Bill Murray acts Mm -hmm. and Bill Murray not really getting sort of like being directed. It seems is the issue. Like Bill Murray to this point is just like working with friends who are like, just go be Bill Murray. Just go have fun out there. I'm satisfied with the outcome. I'm curious. I would be curious to know what other directors would have done with this because 
knowing that the Goonies just happened. And if this movie is not a Christmas Carol meets network, it is definitely a Christmas Carol meets the Goonies. Like it has the same energy. Mm-hmm. It's not the same lovability because it's not children, but it has the same kind of it's a romp. Yeah. And I think it has a cartoon quality to it. But I think that like cartoonishness and sentimentality mixed together well, because you don't feel pandered to really. You just feel childlike when the kid at the end finally says his words because Mm -hmm. he's been mute since his he witnessed his dad get murdered Mm -hmm. like that's a real real life turn when he finally says his thing at the end and i can't remember the words because we know my relationship with the words god bless us everyone i'm just like oh my god it's amazing i get emotional even though i can't remember the words Yeah, it's beautiful. And also, I love that it's like Calvin, who is our tiny Tim, is able to not become like such a giant fixation for our Scrooge and like the person he gets better for. It's not just for the child, which I think is totally the Dickensian model of the universe, which is like, we must think of the children as we force them to make our clothing (laughs) and work when their fathers are in debtor's prison. He gets to do that despite not having like helped inspire an old man to become good for the past hour and a half. He's saved from that emotional labor. I appreciate that. So we know that there are some fathers in this movie like Death and Brian Doyle Murray. Who is the daddy in your uh, in your view? I think it's Bill Murray's secretary, Grace, played by Alfre Woodard, because Mm. she's the only character in this movie with daddy energy radiating off her, I think. And she's got... A bunch of kids. She's got a big family to take care of. She has a boss who gave her a bath towel for Christmas instead of a bonus. <laughs> That's who makes Christmas happen. If if Christmas is happening in your life, thank the graces of the world and in your own life. We know based on conversations in the past how much I enjoy face acting. Mm-hmm. I love when um, she realizes that they're dressed. That her children are dressing her youngest boy up as the Christmas tree, and he doesn't really have any power because he can't really say anything. And she goes out and she's telling the children to stop. And you can t- like she's smiling at the same. There's like a little glimmer of a smile because she finds it entertaining while she's also telling the children to stop. It's such a sweet moment. Yeah. Similarly, I love when Bobcat Goldthwait tells Bill Murray, we're a little bit alike, you and I. And (laughs) the face that Bill Murray gives, like, not at him, but into another direction. (laughs) I like your daddy selection. That's very good. Also, by the way, Bobcat Goldthwait did a really solid Bigfoot horror movie. Yeah. It's called Willow Creek. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's great. My daddy. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with your daddy. Grace is it. Grace is the only real option. Yeah. And she's great at it. Because like Karen Allen is lovely, but it's like, I don't know, sweetie, you got to stop giving out chances so freely at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's been how long, right? Like <laughs> It's been 20 years, probably. And she's like, hi, I'm back. You seem like a complete bastard still. But yeah, you're on TV. I want to try this out again. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. You Are Good is made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices based in Portland, Maine, with offices in Nashville, Tennessee, though does work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Thanks so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode, for making it sound great, for uh, being our music director, for just being great all around. You can find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. 
There is, of course, an album of songs from You Are Good that you can find called The Music of You Are Good Volume 1. You can find it on Bandcamp. You can find it streaming. You can find it at that link, carolynkendrick.com. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats that appear on our show. We love you. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for everything that you do. You can find us on the internet. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on social media. Like I said, you can find us on Discord. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Get in on those bonus episodes. I think that's it. That's all you need to know for right now. That's all from us. We uh, we look forward to chatting some more next week about feelings and movies. All right, everybody. Take care of each other. <laughs>